Here on the Decoding Health Podcast, we're tracing the healing journey and speaking with people who have offered something unique and powerful in their work. Often I have incorporated aspects of their approach into my own healing or the way I work with clients. I'm currently offering a hormonal renewal program that provides direct support and is customized to your unique needs. You can find out more about my work and the programs that I offer at decodinghealth.me. So here's to your health and enjoy the episode. Today on the show, we're speaking with the illustrious Karen Hurd, a nutritionist and biochemist who began her work by saving her own daughter's life from liver failure due to chemical poisoning against the predictions of many medical experts. After that, many people reached out to Karen with their challenging health situations, and she applied the same rigorous research that led to the breakthrough that saved her daughter's life and built a thriving practice. Her work and the insights that drive it have transformed the way I approach the body. I myself have used her healing approach to much good effect in relation to balancing my hormones for overall health and to prevent a breast cancer recurrence. If this is something you would like to work on with me, you can sign up for an exploratory call at my website, sarahannecarlson.com or decodinghealth.me. I spoke with Karen about her overall approach to restoring the endocrine balance in the body and also about the benefits for those struggling with a cancer diagnosis. This conversation with Karen Hurd is split up into two parts. The first part gets into the process of how the body actually clears toxic waste and hormones. The second part gets further into Karen's philosophy and approach to balancing the body. Welcome to the Decoding Health Podcast, where we explore all things left and right-brained when it comes to health, diet and functional nutrition, detoxification, genetics, and most importantly, healing from serious illness and chronic disease. Join me, Sarah Carlson, a coach and a survivor, as we explore the integral components of resilience, from stuck to free, heavy to lifted, and stagnant to energized. It turns out that the advice we seek is likely to be medicine for many others. We're here to share, grow, and learn together while we customize our approach to our individual needs. We explore all this and more here at the Decoding Health Podcast. I just encountered um, Karen Hurd's work a few months ago, and I had been on a journey through my own breast cancer diagnosis and healing, and I was looking for something to address both my hormonal imbalance um, and just making sure everything was in an optimal place there but also some ongoing digestive issues I'd had after traveling to Latin America. I found the bean protocol at a time when I was taking a ton of supplements. I was kind of super intrigued. And then when I started to understand the mechanisms and the science behind what she was explaining, I was really blown away and I was really excited to find something that makes so much sense and isn't so nebulous. it just feels very clear and direct how this functions and supports the body. And in my experience, um, having done it now for the last two and a half months, um, I did have COVID in there. And so I fell off the wagon a little bit, but for the most part, I've been, you know, pretty on point and I've seen a lot of benefits with my hormones and with other things. I wanted to, to just introduce Karen and just welcome her and thank her so much for being here because she's just been such an inspiration for me. And she really had to kind of take her own hero's journey to not give up on 
her daughter when everyone was saying that it was not um, possible for her to heal. And um, I'll let Karen tell you more about that, but that was just her, her resilience and willingness to look for solutions when everyone around her was telling her, give up, this isn't possible. Um, was just so inspiring. And the way that she has delivered that learning to others to support them, you know, it's in a sort of out of the box way because she really innovated a new way of thinking about um, detoxification. As far as I understand, I'll let you speak to that, Karen. She's one of those women that has just used her intelligence and her tenacity and her bravery and heart to really uh, address some critical issues, not only in her personal life, but also in the lives of so many women and so many people. So maybe we could start, Karen, by maybe you could introduce yourself um, as you are now, and then we could get into a little bit more of your story. Yeah, but who are you and, and how do you do what you do? Okay, who I am now? Um, I'm a nutritionist, biochemist. And so I originally just had well, I had my, all my undergrad training in another field altogether, then did my nutritional training and then and started my practice. And then as I went on, I am always desirous of gaining knowledge and I never stop. And so I um, got my master's degree in biochemistry because everything that I was doing in nutrition actually all boiled down to molecular biology and the chemistry of everything. And so I went ahead and got a degree in that and that's the way I currently practice. I am practicing as a biochemist um, in a nutrition field. Um, I work, um, I used to see people here in my office. Oh, thank you. I used to see people in my office, but then my practice has grown so much. I had to come up with a business model to be able to handle the amount of clients that were coming to see me because my goal is to help as many people as I possibly can. So my staff and I decided on producing courses where I do lectures, I do video recordings and of a particular topic, whatever the topic happens to be, like premenstrual syndrome or whatever it is. And then I teach you about that. And then I have specific protocols for if you have a mild or moderate or severe case, if it's PCOS, if it's just it's not just premenstrual syndrome, it that's, entails, you know, a lot of discomfort and pain or whether it's fibroids or whatever it is. And then then that person can enroll in the course and they get to see all the videos and they are perpetual. So you can watch them again and again. Once you're enrolled, you can go back and watch the same video again and again, or, you know, this segment, they're all in segments. And then you have, when you enroll in a course, then you also have the ability to contact me by email, an unlimited contact. So you can email me with any questions or specifics to your situation. Like, I hear all what you said, but I am on, you know, the Mirena IUD. And so what, how does that factor in? And then I answer you directly. So you have, basically you've contracted to have an online nutritionist. So yeah, that's the way I'm currently working. What's your elevator pitch about the bean protocol for people? And many people of course have not heard of it. Some people have now, but um, many people have not. The elevator pitch is that food has the power to kill you and food has the power to heal you. And in our world, we turn to many different avenues for healing. And there's, and I'm not, you know, criticizing any of them, 
but I am saying this to you as definitively as I can, that food can heal you. And if you don't watch out, food can kill you if you choose to eat the wrong things or consume the wrong things. And so that's where I start. Um, I don't usually start with saying this is a bean protocol. That has actually been attached. I've been called the bean queen, the bean lady, the bean princess for years. But when you say this is a bean protocol, a person gets in their head, oh, all I do is when eat beans all day. That is just one part of the entire protocol that has to be done. Because if you eat beans all day, but you're still going to drink your caffeine and eat your donuts, you're not going to get better. There's, there's many factors. So it's been distilled when we say the bean protocol has been distilled into this, this view that that's, that's just the answer. Just eat beans and then everything in your life gets better. No, there's many things that have to be involved to achieve your optimal health. But beans are a part of that plan, an important part of that plan, because without the beans, you're not, and it's the soluble fiber found in the beans, you won't be able to accomplish the optimal health. You need all the pieces working together. So I would love to hear you talk more about, yeah, the actual the actual process and diet itself. Um, I tend to call it the bean protocol, but um, I know that that doesn't even encompass the full dimensions of all of the aspects of it. So um, maybe yeah. you could tell us a bit about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important for people to understand why it's got the name, the bean protocol, because beans are an emphasis in every single thing that we're going to do. Let me just give you an overview of systems in the body and what they're doing, because this the beans have everything to do with what's called detoxification. You have several systems that are going to detox you, and you need these systems. Um, the first system that we have, let's just talk about the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is going to capture viruses, bacteria, fungal things, and they're going to actually hold it in, in the lymph tissue until your body can create an antiviral and anti-antigen to go in and destroy whatever it happened to be, the bacteria or whatever. So we get rid of these things that way. Lymphatic system is very important, but if you lost parts of your lymphatic system, you know, you had... Let's say you had a breast removed because you had breast cancer. Then, you know, they're going to strip out all of these lymph nodes along underneath the arm and along the arm. And or you have your spleen removed, which is a vital part of the lymphatic system. And so we can remove parts of the lymph system. And do you die? No, not at all. You don't die at all. It's an important part, but it is not the most critical system. It's an important one, but not critical. What's the next detoxification system? It's your kidneys. Your kidneys are constantly filtering your blood to remove water-soluble waste. Water-soluble waste is then is excreted in your urine, and then we flush it away. Water-soluble waste, if it's allowed to continue to circulate in your bloodstream, will eventually cause you to go, you will become poisoned with your own water-soluble waste, and you will die. How long does that take? If your kidneys shut down, they did not filter your blood at all of the water-soluble waste, and they just stopped working, you would die in about two weeks. So that's... It's an important system, lymphatic system. You remove lots of it, you never die. But with the kidneys, you're going to die in two weeks if your kidneys shut down. That's why people who have kidney disease have to go into do dialysis because the machine cleans the blood for all the water-soluble waste. But then there is a system that cleans the fat-soluble waste out of your body. You have to throw these wastes away, otherwise you become poisoned by your own metabolic wastes. And the last system that is cleansing us from these waste products is the liver. And the liver clears out 
fat-soluble waste. Know that fat-soluble and water-soluble, they cannot be used, you cannot use the same system to clear them because fats have nothing to do with water and water has nothing to do with fats. They're immiscible. They won't mix. The, the chemistry, there's no chemistry between them that happens. And it's because of different chemical properties that they have. So the fats and the fat-soluble waste are cleared out of your bloodstream by your liver. Well, how important is your liver? Well, we know how important the lymphatic system is. You could live without parts and pieces of it for all your whole life. Uh, you can only live without your kidneys for two weeks. What if your liver shut down? It just didn't process. It didn't filter your blood for the fat-soluble waste. How toxic is this waste? How long would it be before this waste would take your life? Less than 24 hours. You will be dead. So... We are going to focus on the liver because that's what everybody, you know, we always think about drinking lots of water, which is important, you know, keep the kidneys flushing and cleared. But we have to focus on this liver. The liver is removing all the fat-soluble waste. It has to remove it from the bloodstream or you die within 24 hours. So now what does it do with the waste that it just cleared? You have to throw it away. Well, where are we going to throw it away? Do we send it down to the kidneys to put into the urine? No, I just explained that the, the, the kidneys and water-soluble water su substances have nothing to do with fat. They, they can't chemically work together. So we have to have another exit. So we're going to just um, take all this waste that we just pulled out of the bloodstream and then put it back in the bloodstream and maybe it'll go out through the skin. No, that's not enough of a detox. It won't work that way. Um, it, it, you might be able to get rid of a teeny tiny fragment of it, but the rest of it's in your blood and you will die in less than 24 hours. So we have to put this waste somewhere. So where do we put it? We put it into a digestive fluid called bile. Bile is something that the liver makes. It's made out of fats. So you can take a fat-soluble toxin and put it into a fat. And I want to tell you, we're all when we're thinking fat-soluble toxins, probably what's going through everybody's mind is, oh, that's the Roundup. That's the glycophosphates, these, you know, terrible fertilizers and things that we put on crops. Or that's, you know, these things that I'm breathing in from, you know, the air pollution or whatever it is. Well, no, actually, the vast majority of your toxic waste is things that you produce yourself. It's just the metabolic waste from the chemical reactions that happen in your body and all your hormones. Your hormones are fat-soluble. So we have to get rid of those hormones because hormones don't get used up. When they cause chemical reactions to happen, they don't get used up in the reaction. They just continue to go on and trigger more and more reactions. So you have to, if you get too many hormones, you're going to over-trigger reactions. So you've got to get rid of them. Who gets rid of them? The liver. Where, where does the liver put them? In your bile because bile is made out of fat. And you put fat-soluble substances in bile, in fats, in a fat substance. Well, then what happens to the bile? Where does it go? It goes down into your gallbladder, and some of it drips, drips directly into your duodenum. Your duodenum is below your breastbone, that sternum. It's at the end of the breastbone. It's above your belly button, and that's the first part of your small colon. It's called the duodenum, and that's where all bile is released, whether it's dripping directly from the liver or it's coming from the gallbladder. The gallbladder stores bile, and then when you eat a meal, it'll actually go through a wave-like motion of contraction. It's called peristalsis, and then it will shoot large amounts, even up to a quarter cup bile is a liquid and we'll send it straight into the gut into that duodenum okay and then so what happens to the bile it's carrying all this toxic waste that'll kill us in less than 24 hours if we let it go back into the bloodstream well then it travels down through your jejunum which is the second part of your small colon so now we're a little bit below the belly but and a little further down into the ileum and the ileum does a sharp little turn to the right on your body so if you're, you're looking at your own body it's to the right on your right hand side of your abdomen and there, right at the terminal part of the ileum, the third part of the small colon, 
something very, very interesting happens. There's a little valve that separates the small colon from the large colon. It's called the ileocecal valve. And so everything that's going to happen now is going to happen on the proximal side, on the side of the ileum, not on the side of the large colon, because something very happens at this term, interesting happens at the terminal part of the ileum. And you have a valve that's not going to let everything just rush into your large colon. Things get stopped there, so what can happen? So we can absorb fats, because fats are very necessary. You know, all of our hormones, except the thyroid hormones, all of our hormones are made out of fat. If we don't have fat, we cannot live. We have to have fats. They're very good for us. And so when we eat the fats, where are they absorbed? They're absorbed from the terminal part of the ileum. That's the only place they're absorbed from. We absorb carbohydrates in our mouth and in our stomach and some in the duodenum. We absorb proteins in our duodenum and a little bit in our, our uh, jejunum. Where do we absorb fats? Any of those places? Nope. We only absorb fats from the terminal part of the ileum. Just the ileum is where we absorb fats from. Okay, that's good to know. So you had some good olive oil on something or you had some nice, you know, um, almonds or whatever, nuts that you're eating. Those are all good fats and you eat those. So they're absorbed there at 95%. Other fat will be absorbed at the terminal part of the ileum. Here's a question for you. If bile is made out of fat, is a bile absorbed too? And the answer is yes. How much? 95%. Wait a minute. You're telling me that 95% of my bile that's carrying out all this toxic waste that's going to kill me in 24 hours is going back to my bloodstream? That is exactly what is happening. That is exactly what happens. And this is not some theory or dream or hypothesis. This is so well documented. It's called the enterohepatic recirculation. And so your bile, 95% of it, will because, because the liver pulls it out a second time and a third time, up to 70, up to 20. It depends on the person's motility in their GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, up to 21 to 72 times a day. The liver pulls it back out of the bloodstream because all these toxins, all these hormones, all this waste goes back into your bloodstream and it's all set free again. It's not like it's bound up in the molecule. It's all set free and it's running around loose. And the liver goes, oh no, I got to pull all this stuff out again. And it does. It filters all that fat-soluble waste out again that it just recycled. 95% of it came back. And guess what? You made new hormones because you just had caffeine. You just were in a stressful situation. You just did whatever you did. You made more hormones. Or you were exposed to another perfume because perfumes are cleared by the liver too. Or another essential oil. They're all, they're all cleared by the liver. And so all this comes back and the liver has to clear out the 95% that it's just returning. And now it's all the new stuff that happened in the last several minutes before this. And it's like, oh, okay, we'll clear all that out. Where we do, we put it in the bile. We send the bile down the gastrointestinal tract. Once it's out of the bloodstream, yeah. And I'm just curious if that means that you're maybe having a higher ex uh, toxin exposure. It's, it's, it's how fast things move through your GI tract is motility. How fast, you know, some things travel through. I mean, some people can sit at a meal and then they're in the bathroom 10 minutes later and it's shooting out the other end. That's some really fast motility. When some people, you can eat something and it takes four days to get it to pass through. And so that is dependent upon peristalsis, how the wave-like motion of your gut is happening at the moment. It's how often you're recycling, how often you're recycling your bile. If you don't recycle your bile as often, then those toxins stay in contact with your tender little epithelial cells that line the lumen. You know, you said you had it in your lumen when you talked about your amoeba infection. Yes, yeah, so the lumen is just means the, the cells that are lining this open space. 
They're called epithelial cells. And so the more you have that violent con contact with those cells, then the more they will become damaged because they are in contact with very toxic substances. And so then you end up with ulcers and you end up with inflammation and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and SIBO, small intestinal bowel, you know, bacterial overgrowth. And it's just it, just a myriad of problems that occur because we want that bile to flow and to eventually, we want it to land in the toilet. And I'll tell you how we get it to land in the toilet because 95% is recycling. So your liver clears out the old stuff. Now it's got new stuff. It puts it all in the bile, sends it to the GI tract. When it is in the GI tract, it is outside of the blood circulation. You will not die in 24 hours because it's not in the bloodstream. It's in your gut. It's in a, a, a whole separate system. And so then it will recycle again. Just to recap that, because I think that's really interesting for people to know, because so many people have gut issues and gut motility issues and stasis mm -hmm. in their digestive tract. And you're saying that that means that there's more time that their endothelial cells lining their digestive tract are sitting just in contact with this likely often toxic bile, that bile that contains these fat soluble toxins um, that can cause all sorts of issues, including, I guess, um, inflammation and toxin exposure and whatever other things. So that's kind of a yes. big thing. It's a very big thing. It's a very big thing. It's a very, very big thing. And so we continue to recycle this bile over and over and over many times a day for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And then we have all these health problems because the amount of toxins that are continually being re-released into your bloodstream are so great that all of that estrogen that we never were able to clear and that has been gathering up for years is going to be triggering all these you know, receptor sites on the female tissue that has estrogen receptor sites. And then you have cancer. It's like, duh, we knew this was going to happen. You have to throw them away. Well, how do you throw them away? We can't let 95% of the bile recycle. We have to interrupt that, that recycling process. And we, the way we do that is we have to find some food. I'm always going back to food, not, not a supplement, a food. What food can we eat that has these two properties? One, it has to be able to bind a fat-soluble molecule. So we have to have the chemistry that it can bind up and, and capture a fat-soluble uh, molecule. And then two, that food or whatever that substance is cannot be absorbed through the GI tract. It can't go into the bloodstream because otherwise it would just drag the fat soluble toxin in with it, that molecule. There is one substance, one substance that does that in nature. And that is soluble fiber. And where is soluble fiber found in the most concentrated place in a food? In beans. And that's why people call this the bean protocol, because this is so important. As you get rid of your toxins that are circulating through the liver, you throw them out. So you eat beans. So here you have all of this nasty bile coming down into your duodenum. And you eat beans. You swallow them. If they go down your esophagus, they go through a couple of sphincters, and they land in your stomach, cross the pyloric sphincter, and they enter into the duodenum. That's where the beans are going to go. And they'll land in your duodenum, I mean, in just, you know, a, a couple, a minute, you know, they can be down there. So here's your bile and here's your beans and they're in the same space. They're together in the same duodenum and they see each other from a crowded, across a crowded duodenum and they're very chemically attracted to each other. They rush into each other's arms and they get married. They have a chemical reaction where they're totally bound up. What happens is, is the soluble fiber of the bean is a very complex polysaccharide. It catches this bile molecule like a net and it's captured. 
And that biomolecule cannot escape that soluble fiber molecule. It is caught forever. And so now this bile travels down and is caught up in all of this. You know, they're married together, chemically married together. And they go down, 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 and they reach the terminal part of the ileum. And the bile says, hey, it's really been nice traveling with you here, soluble fiber, but I'm headed back to the liver. You know, fats absorb here. I'm a fat. I'll see you later. And the soluble fiber says, wait, 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 we're married. And you see you're caught in my net and you're not going to get out of my net. So we're going to go together through the ileocecal valve into the large colon. And we're going to go out into the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. And we're going together, buddy. And you throw away that bile molecule, which is carrying the toxins. And you throw it away. And you throw the hormones away that create so many of our health problems. It all gets tossed away. It's, that is so Simple and so cool. And then as you continue to eat beans on a regular basis, you interrupt the entero, this, in, this recycling. It's called the enterohepatic recirculation. And you interrupt it. We eat beans three times a day, three times a day, you threw away all your bile and didn't allow it to recycle. Yeah. And I want to talk about this in the context of cancer, just because I had it. So many people have it. It's such a common endemic um, issue that we have in our culture. Um, can we? Can you talk a little bit about how obviously there's a hormonal impact, there's a toxin impact that's I think probably playing into all of this. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see all of this playing. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to know most of our carcinogenic toxins are fat soluble. So, you know, we and we there's lots and lots of them out there. I mean, you can just read the list of ingredients on a perfume. Most of them are carcinogens. And we know that, that that ingredient itself causes cancer. They are fat-soluble. So the liver is clearing all this fat-soluble carcinogenic material that we're taking in from various sources. It's in our air. It can be in, you know, it can be in our food. It can be anywhere. And so your liver is constantly clearing that stuff out. But that's actually a very small part of what's going to cause cancer. The biggest thing that causes cancer is your own hormonal over Overcirculation, and sometimes we overproduce. Like if you're using the stimulants, you're overproducing the hormone, which makes it worse. But if you continue to recycle your hormones, you think about it: the majority of female cancers are caused by hormones, too many hormones, and that's because they've been circulating since this little girl went through menarche when she was 12 or whatever years old, and she's been recycling estrogen for however many number of years, round and round and round. But if that little girl had been eating, if mama said, honey, you got to eat beans at breakfast and some at lunch and some at dinner three times a day, then we would have been throwing all that estrogen out for all those years. It wouldn't have been recycling year after year after year because hormones don't break down. They can be broken down by the liver, but it's very rarely done by the liver. They are a full and complete molecule that just keeps running round and round and causing more problems every time it comes back. So... When you eat the soluble fiber, it's absolutely critical. Those who have cancer that I treat, I have them eat the beans a minimum of six to eight times per day, depending on the type of cancer they have. You know, if it's a hormonally fed cancer, because some cancers are not hormonally fed. They are, they're caused, they're, they're other causes to cancer too. And so we're going to be eating, because we have to throw away these toxic things that create, that are carcinogens, as well as our own hormones that as they recycle can create cancers. So we eat our beans. Yeah, exactly. We eat our beans. And it's interesting because I, when I got developed breast cancer, um, you know, they say it takes years to develop slowly, but actually because I had, I had 
some other health stuff going on. I think COVID or Lyme or something. I was having a lot of fatigue and health and digestive issues that were sort of sudden and really intense, more different than I'd ever had in my life. And I decided to get off caffeine. I thought maybe my adrenals are fatigued. Maybe I need to just, you know, nip this in the bud. And but I, what I did instead was I started taking adaptogenic herbs um, that. I realized later, I mean, I knew that they, I thought that they were hormone balancing, but I think that they were, yeah, I did maca and um, shatabari, which is like a Ayurvedic um, asparagus root that is said to be hormone balancing, but I think it, it enhances estrogen. Um, and maca, I think is enhances, I think maybe progesterone and an estrogen. And I also did yes. um, ashwagandha as sort of like my, my substitute for caffeine, right? Which a lot of people do. <clears throat> and I was doing like a teaspoon of each in my morning, you know, nut milk. And um, it was during that time that I started to notice, uh, like I tended to get, um, I have fibrocystic breasts, which would get lumps in our breasts, especially around our cycle. So I wasn't super concerned at first. And they, you know, everything you read online is like, if you're lump is tender it's probably not cancer but my lump was tender and it definitely grew dramatically and during that time when i was taking those um uh those herbs. herbs and and um you know i'm not against herbs but um it was a wake-up call to me to really think about you know how things affect your are affecting your body yeah so what would you say to that do you think that i was just i was just upping the level hormones you in were. my body you were and you i know, didn't have adequate ways to to purge them because i wasn't eating beans you because i was eating a low carb diet because i was eating um yeah because a lot of people are eating paleo or ketogenic diets as a way to heal because they have this gut inflammation and it's you know i like i can't eat gluten ever since going to latin america so you know I mean, grains in general tend to be harder for me so it's like this idea of avoiding these things. And then, you know, beans sort of got demonized and, and then, and then pretty soon you're not eating a lot of soluble fiber. And then, and then now all of a sudden you have cancer and it's like, well, I thought I was doing all the right things, but you weren't. Cause I wasn't you know, eating a lot of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. You're saying I'm not eating a lot of sugar, but you were doing these herbs and they're, yes, they're called hormone balancing, but the way they're balancing is they're saying, well, we need more of this, that we people, we know how much hormone you need. Did you know your need for hormones changes by the millisecond in your body? And the only one, the only system that can determine what you need at the moment is your system, your pituitary gland, measuring exactly how much hormone is needed, how much hormone is in present, how much needs to be made. And then it sends out the stimulating hormones to be able to get that to be done. And we think we're so smart. We're smarter than our own brain, our own you know, our own pituitary that's handling this pituitary is actually part of the endocrine system. And we decide I'm going to take this and then that's going to give me more of that or more of this hormone. And then that's, you're just increasing, let your body balance this. You do, we do not have the same capacity as our body to do this millisecond by millisecond balancing of hormones. So we just take a straight amount, you know, at morning breakfast or breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So yes, that definitely would have added to your issues. And so it would have, it could have developed very quickly. And then hormonally fed cancer. Yours was a hormonally fed cancer? Yes, oh. progesterone and estrogen. Yep, definitely. <laughs> Related to all this, as women age into, you know, their 40s, late 40s into 50s, 
perimenopause into menopause, a lot of my friends are suddenly having all these issues. Obviously, I think the protocol would be helpful because it could balance their hormones, but your hormones are sort of like in flux, right? I mean, there's like sleep issues that are happening. There's, and I'm still having those. I have to say that's one thing that waking up too soon is one of the challenges that I'm having right now. And maybe that's complicated by things in my life. I'm in the middle of changing a lot of things in my life. So that might be, you know, kind of stimulating my mind and my nervous system. But um, yeah, I was, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, the change that women go through at this time, because so myself and so many other women are seeing shifts in their bodily landscape and their hormones. And it's just so not talked about. And um, when it is talked about, it's talked about more from a biomedical sort of yeah, how to put inputs in and how to um, add things or, to, you know, rather than kind of like what you're saying, which is like, how do we let the body find its own balance and its own wisdom to self-regulate? It's really pretty simple. Let's go back to when we were little girls, when we were little girls and we had not gone through puberty yet, we produced more estrogen than testosterone. And so then we go through a stage and it all has to do with growth hormones that we go through puberty and then our ovaries mature and then our ovaries begin to produce estrogen for us. Up to that time, the estrogen that made us little girls and not little boys was produced by your adrenal glands through, and it's actually in tissues, different tissues, but um, the adrenal glands are producing the testosterone and the androgens and then estrogen is made from testosterone. And so that was all being done for us by what gland specifically was orchestrating all this, the adrenal glands. So then you go through puberty and that's stimulated by a growth hormone. And so that's a separate little issue, but we, our ovaries become active. And so then the ovaries then are the ones that produce estrogen for you. Adrenals no longer really have anything to do with it. The adrenals say, oh, thank you. You took that off my plate. Now I can just work and focus on, and they still can produce estrogen, but it doesn't. Why produce it when the ovaries are producing it? And there's different forms of estrogen. So the estrogen being produced by the ovaries is a stronger estrogen and can make you childbearing. And so then we go through our years, our, you know, 40 years or whatever, you know, just shy of 40 years. You know, if you get your cycle when you're, you're 12, then you'll be 52. Or, you know, some girls nowadays are getting it when they're 11 or even nine, which is absolutely terrible because they're going to have, that's, that's just, well, that's another subject for another day. But anyway, so then we are, are almost 40 years, you know, that we're having this cycle. Then the ovaries say, okay, I'm done. I'm tired. I've been producing estrogen for you for these, you know, four decades, and I am, I'm going to shrivel up and die. And that's exactly what happens to the ovaries. The ovaries is about the size of an almond, and it's a nice plump almond. So, you know, they're not very big, you know, like about that. And then they stop producing the estrogen because they're tired and wore out, and they actually shrivel up. And they look like a dried up, you've seen a dried up raisin. It's little, hard little dried up raisin. That's what they turn into. And they, and they don't produce any more estrogen. So we're going to have to have some estrogen. So where is the body? And this is a natural process. You, we have, you know, nowadays we say we step in and say, well, we'll give you estrogen replacement. We're going to put you on a pill or a patch. It's like, no, 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 no. Let the body do this. So the body says, okay, where do we get estrogen? Where did we get estrogen before we went through Menar, when before we went through puberty? We got it from the adrenal glands. We take testosterone and we make it out of testosterone and, and the adrenal glands are going to orchestrate this whole thing. 
So now we turn to the adrenal glands after 40 years and say, you know, you've had a break. You haven't had to make estrogen for these past 40 years, but you know, ovaries up here, just the ovaries down here just died. It's your, it's your turn again. You got to make estrogen. And the adrenals say, what? I'm very busy here. Do you understand how much stress I'm under? Do you know this lady's drinking caffeine out the kazoo, eating sugar and doing perfume and fragrances, got an exercise program going under stress with her marriage and her finances and blah, blah, blah. I am making so much adrenaline. You think I'm going to make estrogen in my spare time? Drop dead. I'm not going to do it. And so the adrenals don't. And you don't get the estrogen. So what happens to you? You get hot flashes. You get vaginal dryness because you don't have enough estrogen to keep the vaginal lubrication of the tissues going. You get migraine headaches. You get the old depression. And it's just name all the menopausal symptoms. Why did you get them? Because your adrenals were tired. And they said, I cannot take up that additional responsibility after I've been resting on the estrogen production for 40 years. You haven't asked me to do that for 40 years. And now you're asking me to do that. I don't have time. You're giving me too much work. And so it doesn't do it. And then you have every symptom of menopause. So if you want to go through menopause and have no symptoms, you have to have an adrenal system that's strong and healthy. How do you get one of those? Don't do caffeine. Don't do sugar. Don't do perfumes. It's all the things that we just ran through in that other segment. We don't do any of those things. And then your adrenal glands are fine. And so the ovaries kick off and die. And then it's the pituitary that actually sends a message down and says, oh, okay, just want you to know, adrenals, it's your turn again. You need to pick up and produce estrogen like you did 40 years ago. And the adrenals say, aye, aye, sir, will do. And they produce your estrogen. And you don't have hot flashes. And you don't have menopausal symptoms. And you just sail through. The estrogen that is produced is the same type of estrogen that was produced when you were a little girl. So you will still have estrogen, but you're not going to be able to be childbearing anymore. So you don't have menstrual cycles. You don't, none of that. So, but you're still very much a girl, very much a woman. And so it's, it's very easy if you took care of your adrenals all these years, but most people don't. And they arrive at that place with worn out adrenals and they go, what's the matter with me? Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's so interesting. I've never heard that explained so well. You can abilitate your adrenal glands until the day you die. They will always regenerate. Always, always, always. They have a mitosis that cellular life of the adrenal gland cell is three months long. And so in three months, you can see a definitive change in your situation. And three months after that, another definitive change. And so every three months that you, that pass, you will be so much better. If you're eating right, you know, doing the things you're eating, your beans or getting rid of all the excess waste and all the things we've talked about so far. So it is very possible to recover your adrenal glands, but you know that it's going to take at least three months and it could take up to 18 to 24 because some things we don't know about what if you were under stress and you can't get out from underneath the stress? You know, what if you were a Ukrainian trying to escape the country right now? You know, and you're a woman going through menopause. I will tell you that you're under really high stress and you have got to have your fight and flight working for you. We're not going to worry about trying to produce estrogen. You're just going to have hot flashes. Just live with it and get out of the country. You know, we, we have things that we can't. Chronic infection um, is a dis- I think chronic infection is a stress. Absolutely. And so we have, or, you know, or you're just living in a stressful situation at home, you know, like you have an alcoholic husband or you have kids that have gone off the rails or, you know, whatever, you know, so we, we don't know what that situation will be. And so for each woman, it'll be a different time. If your situation is as perfect as it can be in three months, you will see a massive change for the better. But if it's not such a perfect situation and you've got whatever these things hanging over your head, 
with stresses, then it will take us a little longer. But will you heal? Absolutely, you'll heal. Even a woman that's in her 90s that still is having hot flashes because she's never rebuilt her adrenal. She can rebuild her adrenal glands. Absolutely. Right. That's amazing. And, and, and that's similar with men, I assume, with like men have prostate issues and things of that nature and adrenal yeah. issues where they get fatigued. And I, it's a similar situation for them. It's a similar situation. The mechanism of action is a little different because their prostate problems are caused by the overproduction of estrogen. And then the prostate has to grow in size to be able to knock down the nasty estrogens because by genetics, they're supposed to be men, not women. So the prostate grows to produce the extra androgens. And then we get a problem with too many androgens. And then that's why, then that's why they have prostate. But we just have to remove those hormones. That's all. And not take in like... Caffeine is a direct stimulus production of estrogen. Estrogen. Yes. If you want to make gobs of if you want to make gobs of estrogen, drink caffeine. You're going to have gobs and gobs of estrogen, and you don't want that because that's one of the causes of our breastfed cancers or our uterine cancers, cervical cancers. You're saying that. Cancer is primarily hormonally driven, not so much about the toxins. Well, toxins are part of it, but I mean, there are our main source, it depends on the cancer we're talking about, but when you're looking at female cancers, it's mostly hormonal. But we do have toxins that create cancer too, yes. They're carcinogenic toxins. Mm -hmm. Right. But I'm assuming that when you're eating the soluble fiber and you're regularly purging the fat-soluble toxins, that yeah, it's- yeah, throwing them away. Then you're throwing away those toxins and they don't recycle because the toxins will recycle too, just like just like the hormones. So my my question is, you research this partly to to save your own daughter, to save her life. Yes. And yes. you figured this out. You went into the research libraries, you looked at the microfish, you came up with this protocol, this idea for supporting your, your daughter where she had an overloaded level of toxicity in her liver. One of the questions that comes up for me is, why is no one else talking about this? Why, if you, if their research was there and people, this seemed to be something that was floating out there in the zeitgeist. Maybe it wasn't put together in the form that it is now, but on some level, somebody was aware of this. Um, why is it not something that's already being utilized to support people through recovery from things like cancer or hormonal imbalance. Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, I do. Um, it's because we, we're like lemmings. We really are. People are like lemmings and we all run off the cliff together. And so if we have people that are, you know, saying that their focus is on this part of research and the focus isn't over here and all that focus is there, we all put the focus there. And to think outside of the box is actually not encouraged. Um, to think outside of the box is discouraged because you're going against the crowd and against the stream of things. And, you know, you're causing trouble. And so we don't even want to look at that. And, you know, we got to focus over here. And so that is not just in science. It's in every single area of life. You just try to be different. And somebody's going to, you know, try to put you in their mold. And, but that's the way we discover things. You know, Einstein was laughed at because he was so stupid. But then Einstein went ahead and laughed at this Heidelberg or whoever he was that, you know, came up with the theory of, you know, the electrons were in a cloud and not in a certain position around. And Einstein laughed at him and said, you're stupid, you know. 
But he was right, and his theory was proved right. It's when something is different than the norm. I mean, look at Columbus. He said, I think the world is round. Everybody said, no, no, no. He tried for 20 years to get people to give him ships to, so he could sail around, get, you know, he could sail in one direction to get to the other and prove the world was round. Nobody would believe him. And they actually, his crew mutinied it almost three times and tried to kill him. Because he was so stupid, you know, because everybody knows that the world is flat, you know. And so we don't, we are people, as people, we are not very receptive to new ideas. We are not at all. And we like to go the mainstream the way everybody else is going. And for these upstart people, they you have to work really hard to get your voice heard. And it takes decades to get heard. You were not only trying to get your voice heard, but you were actually helping people and saving lives. And it's incredible that more and more people are learning about what you do now. And it's actually making a huge difference. It is making a difference because I started this 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago with just a few. And it's grown to thousands upon thousands upon thousands to multiple podcasts. But it's taken 30 years. And will this continue to grow? Yes. In another 30 years, this will be standard medicine. You got to be able to do the soluble fiber people. We got to be able to clear the. We've known about this for 60 years. Why haven't we done this? You know, this, it just takes that much time. You know, I have to tell you that I heard a researcher talking about um, soluble fiber. And I thought, is he been listening to Karen, Karen Heard? Because they were talking about um, soluble fiber and beans specifically as being beneficial for um feeding prebiotics um, and feeding the beneficial bacteria in the gut. And there was a couple of other things that really echoed a lot of the things that you talk about. So I was like, I thought that was interesting. And it, and it could be, and maybe he's done the original research that I did or, or has heard of me. And then they looked in the research. It's just like, we need tens of thousands of people preaching the same message because we're a world of 7 billion people here, you know, and it, it just takes a while to get the word out. My last question for you, because I know that we, we have to wrap up, but I, I was wondering if it's possible to train practitioners in this. You hear this, because what I'm telling you is not some hypothesis and, you know, I hope it's true. And no, this is, it's, it's in the science. You just got to dig out these little nuggets and then begin to practice them. It, the way I'm approaching it is through my courses. I reach more people through my courses and then they can take my courses and then they can learn and then they can, they can start to apply so, I mean, you know, whether you're a doctor, you're a nurse or whoever you want to be, you know, you can, you can learn these things and you can begin to apply them. So I have actually had many doctors that take all of my courses and then they use them in their practice, you know, to guide their patients. And then if they have a question about patient X, Y, Z, and they're not sure, then they can then, you know, they can, if it's about a patient, it's not about them, then they can purchase, you know, it's not very much money just for $30. They can purchase a a consult with me and then write me their question and say, okay, I've got this patient with this, this, and this, what do you think I should do? And then I'll, then we consult back and forth so that I'm available to help them. And you become the expert because then you're practicing it and you learn it and you become the expert. I mean, we mentor all these people all at one time. And then we have, we get tens of hundreds of thousands of us. Then imagine all the great good we could do. Yes. The fabulous good. Yes. Well, thank you so, so much for coming, um, Karen. It's so great to have you on and to go to her website and check out her courses. She has an, an immense well of wisdom and practical information. And um, we're really grateful that she graced us with her time today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Karen.
You're welcome. I have split this conversation with Karen Hurd into two podcast episodes. Please tune in to the second segment where we get into an overview of her healing approach. It turns out that the advice we seek is likely to be medicine for many others. We're here to share, grow, and learn together while we customize our approach to our individual needs. We explore all this and more here at the Decoding Health Podcast.